morning. You know, I'm thankful for the years that I spent here as, as a member and serving among you um, as, a, as a pastoral intern. I mean, I'm always uh, grateful for the privilege it is to be back with you. As we open God's word this morning, would you turn with me to Romans chapter 16? Romans chapter 16, we'll be examining the last three verses of Paul's letter. Romans 16, verses 25 to 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God, Be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. In the late 1600s, an Anglican minister by the name of Thomas Ken wrote a series of hymns. And at the end of each of these hymns, he concluded with the same 25 words. Those 25 words we now sing as the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Now, in ending each of these hymns the same way, in the praise of God, he's simply following the pattern of Scripture that we see particularly in the book of Romans. Consider the the broader structure of the book. Paul spends 11 chapters unpacking the great doctrines of the Christian faith. And at the end of Romans 11, as we just read, He concludes how? Well, in doxology, right? In praising God. And as he moves on into the more practical side of the Christian life, he ends in the exact same way at the end of the letter in doxology to make this point. God is worthy of praise. And it seems like such a simple point. And yet, throughout all eternity, we will not mind the depths of the praiseworthiness of God. But we begin to see this in this particular text. Look with me at verse 25. He begins by pointing us to the object of our praise, now to him. Now, who is this him? Well, the most obvious answer is God. And that's certainly correct. But more particularly, it's a reference to God the Father. Look down at verse 27. It says again, To the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. This reference becomes even more clear if you turn to the introduction of the book in the first four verses. Listen to how Paul opens the letter. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, so a reference to the Son, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now follow the pronouns. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, a reference to the father, who was descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, reference to the Holy Spirit, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So you see how Paul's Trinitarian theology shapes the way that he speaks about God. And at the end of the letter, it shapes the way he praises God. He praises the triune God. And this ought to be the same for us as well. Joel Beakey asks these questions. Do you worship the triune God? Do you adore the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as three persons and one God? Do you find yourself drawn to love love the Father and the Spirit when you consider the Son? With the same being true for any of the three persons, the real test of our grasp of the doctrine of the Trinity is not how much we understand the true God, but how much we worship him. Paul worships the triune God, and as he does this, he draws our attention to two attributes in particular. The first is that God is powerful. God is powerful. We see this in verses 25 and 26. Now, throughout the letter, Paul has referenced the various kinds of trials that a Christian may face. These could be physical trials, such as illness or persecution, as he mentions in Romans 8, referring to danger or famine or nakedness or sword. These could also be relational trials, problems in our interpersonal relationships, as in Romans 14 and 15, where he begins referring to the the quarrels over opinions that were as a problem in the church at Rome. Or these could be theological trials, as the church deals with the problem of false teachers in the immediate context. He warns about those who deceive the hearts of the naive with their smooth talk and flattery. He warns the church to mark and avoid false teachers. So there is certainly a variety of trials that a Christian may face. And it is in that context that Paul then says, God is able to strengthen us. Now this word, strengthen, it means to fasten or to establish. So the sense is not that Christians are to move through life in our own strength, in our own power, but rather it's that we are being propped up by God. Let me give you an example of what this looks like. In the mid-1500s, there were two men named Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. They were Anglican ministers, and they were advisors to King Edward VI, who was a Protestant king. Now, when Mary I came to power, being a Roman Catholic, she launched a persecution against all Protestants, earning her her nickname Bloody Mary. Latimer and Ridley were two of the first Marian martyrs. And as they were tied back to back to be burned at the stake together, listen to what they said to one another. Be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flame or else strengthen us to abide it. Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. God was able to strengthen them even in the face of death. And God is able to strengthen you in the various trials that you may face. And as you walk through life, let me encourage you this morning that no matter what you face, you can be encouraged by the words that the church has sung throughout the years. Listen to this. Fear not, I am with thee. 
Oh, be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous and omnipotent hand. God is powerful and he is able to strengthen his people. Paul continues to explain how God does this, the means by which God strengthens us. And the primary means is the gospel. God strengthens us by the gospel. And it's for that reason that Paul opens his letter saying that I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God to salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now what is this gospel? Notice he says in verse 25, according to my gospel. Well, what is the gospel that Paul preaches? We find no better answer than in his letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul's gospel is the preaching of Jesus Christ. He knows nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now let me ask you, where is your source of strength? Where do you place your faith? What is your source of hope and of help? Is it the wisdom of men, the politics, or the, the insights of, of psychology or sociology? Or is it the power of God, the gospel, the, the message of Jesus Christ? Charles Spurgeon gives us a, a helpful reminder. He says, oh, there is in contemplating Christ, a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Spirit, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity. And you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. God strengthens us by the truth of the gospel, this message of Jesus Christ, which Paul goes on to refer to as a mystery. Now in the New Testament, a, a mystery is not so much something that is not knowable, but rather it refers to a, a veiled part of the Old Testament that with Christ's coming is now unveiled. And particularly in Paul, this refers to the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's plan of salvation. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 1.27. To them, referring to the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And in Ephesians 3, 6, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise 
in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So in Christ, there is salvation for the Jew and also for the Greek. If you're here this morning, there is salvation for you in Christ Jesus. So if you are not a Christian this morning, God's word goes out to you. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And the promise of God is that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And this gospel that Paul preaches, the means by which God strengthens us, Paul says, was even talked about back in the Old Testament. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. As 1 Peter says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So this gospel that was hidden in the Old Testament, that was veiled in the Old Testament, has now become clear in Christ. And we see Paul pick up on this reality in the beginning of his letter, in his thesis, in Romans 1.17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So as Paul unpacks this centerpiece of the gospel, the way that man is made right with God is not by works, but by faith alone. Where is he drawing this from? Well, he's drawing it from the Old Testament. This statement, the righteous shall live by faith, it is a quote from Habakkuk 2.4. And if you look back in Habakkuk 2, and you go down just a few verses, what you'll find is the ultimate end for which God prophesied this salvation, the reason for which Christ came, why God saves sinners by faith. It says in Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the great end of the gospel and the salvation that we receive. It is the praise and the glory of God to see every nation praising God's name. Paul continues as he unpacks the gospel in this mystery he says that it is all unfolded according to the command of the eternal God. John Calvin notes, Paul teaches us that this has not happened through the hasty doings of men or through chance, but through the eternal decree of God. And for the apostle Paul, that gave him every reason in the world to pray. Consider what he says in Ephesians 3. When he speaks of the unfolding of the gospel, the unfolding of this mystery, he says this was according to the eternal purpose that God realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. 
So for Paul, one of the primary implications of the gospel in our union with Christ is the access and boldness that we have to come to God in prayer. Now listen to what he says as he continues. For this reason, this boldness and access, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see how Paul prays? You see the extravagance of his prayer requests. It is because of this gospel that God has decreed from long ago. This gospel in which we now stand that gives us access to God to pray boldly as Paul does here. And how does he conclude his prayer? In praise. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all ages, forever and ever. Amen. God strengthens us through the gospel. But there is also a purpose for which God strengthens us. He strengthens us, as he says in verse 26, to bring about the obedience of faith. At the end of the gospel is that we are obedient to God to the praise of his name. Matthew Henry says, The gospel is revealed not to be talked of and disputed about, but to be submitted to. The obedience of faith is that which is paid to the standard of faith and which is produced by the grace of faith. See here what is the right faith that which works in obedience. And what is the right obedience? That which springs from faith. And what is the design of the gospel to bring us to both? God strengthens us for the obedience of faith. But as you'll notice, God often does this through means. Paul uses the same phrase, obedience of faith, in his introduction in Romans 1.5, that his apostleship was for the purpose of bringing about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. So Paul's apostleship and his teaching is the means that God uses to bring us to obedience. And this same means is evident in the local church. This is the importance of the local church. Consider what Paul says as he moves down into verses 11 and 12. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith both yours and mine. Paul longs to see them face to face. He longs to be with them so they can be mutually encouraged. They can be mutually strengthened to this obedience of faith. Consider all the things that we do when we gather. The word is read. The word is preached and it is heard. It is meditated on. We sing and encourage one another and admonish one another In song, we pray for and with one another. As we'll do shortly, we observe the Lord's Supper, remembering the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf that brings us together here this morning. 
Joel Beakey gives us this warning. If you do not participate in a local church, you are cutting yourself and your family off from the primary means by which God saves sinners, builds his church, and blesses his people. God strengthens us for the obedience of faith. But not only does Paul point out that God is powerful, he also reminds us that God is wise. In verse 27, he says, To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. And we certainly confess that, that God is the only wise God. But then what happens? Well, life happens. And we find ourselves in circumstances where we begin to ask questions. We ask the why question. God, why is this happening? God, I don't understand this. Well, what are we doing? We're asking the question, God, are you really the only wise God? And Paul addresses a a similar question in Romans 9 through 11. At the end of chapter 8, He's made this great declaration that nothing can separate God's people from his love. But as he moves into chapter 9, what is Paul's heart? I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? Because the Jewish people are are not believing in Christ. And so it raises the question, does this mean that God's word has failed? Does this mean that that God's promises have failed? Does this call into question the wisdom of God and all that he's done up until this point? What is Paul's answer? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And as he unfolds that answer, what what do we learn? That the unbelief of Israel what seems to be a failure in the plan of God, what seems to be a deficiency in his wisdom, is actually the very means by which God accomplishes his purposes to bring both the Jew and the Gentile to salvation. God has consigned all to disobedience that he what? May have mercy on all. And this causes Paul to do what? To erupt into praise As we just read, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. J.I. Packer reminds us that wisdom without power would be pathetic, a broken reed. Power without wisdom would be merely frightening. But in God, boundless wisdom and endless power are united. And this makes him utterly worthy of our fullest trust. That our God is worthy of praise for his power and for his wisdom. And so we say with Paul, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. And this is the the call of the Christian life, is to praise God. Consider what David says in Psalm 145. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. 
Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. But how do we do this? How do we grow in the praise of God? How do we grow in living a life of worship? Well, David continues, Psalm 145.5, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. David commits himself to meditating on the person and work of God, his character, his attributes. Consider our text this morning. Paul praises the God who is able to strengthen us, the only wise God. Consider the the depth of what we're saying when we say this. When we say that God is able to strengthen us, what are we confessing about ourselves? That we don't have any strength of our own. We're confessing our need. We're confessing our need for the God who is all-powerful to prop us up. When we say to the only wise God, what are we saying? That we don't have any wisdom of our own. That we need the wisdom of God. There is no wisdom in the world for us that God is the only source of wisdom. And we are totally dependent upon him. As we offer praise to God, as we consider his attributes, what does that make us do? It makes us look away from ourselves, look away from ourselves, and look unto Christ. Consider what Paul says about him in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is what? The power of God and wisdom of God. And in God giving us Christ, look at all that we receive by our union with him. Paul says, and because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So as we pray together, sing together, and take the Lord's Supper together, let me exhort you with these words that we just sang. O come to the Father, through Jesus the Son, and give him the glory, great things he has done. Will you pray with me? Father, you are worthy of praise. You are the one who is powerful, who is able to to strengthen us. You are the only wise God. You deserve all glory and all honor and all praise. Thank you for this gospel that you have promised long ago, that you have unfolded through your word. It centers on the Lord Jesus Christ who reveals to us who you are and who does for us what we can never do for ourselves. Thank you for his death for our sin. Thank you for his resurrection from the dead, the fact that he is seated at your right hand making intercession for us. Thank you that you have justified us by faith. 
That our standing with you is not dependent upon our works, but is dependent on the finished work of Christ. And I ask as we take this Lord's Supper together, that we would examine our hearts, that we would, that our sin would be exposed, that we would confess our sins, that we would come to you with boldness, with the access that we have with you through faith in Christ. Set our minds and our meditation on who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And through him, may we praise your great name. And I ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.